dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I'm the producer for Pass the Mic, Bo York, and with me, ladies and gentlemen, Jamar Tisby. Greetings, greetings, and God bless. <laughs> I'm used to a much longer introduction with Tyler, but I'm grateful for the brief one and even more grateful that you are back on the pod, joining us once again with your interview stylings, the incredible award-winning Bo York. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah, no, I guess I guess the the long intro does kind of you have like this habit of being able to get your like your mind right, right? Like while Tyler is getting. Yeah, bro was like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, you ready? Boom. Hey, welcome to Passive Mike. I'm like, whoa, okay. Um, here we go. Here we are. Uh, I'm a pro. Let's do this. <laughs> we're in it, we're in it, man. Uh, yeah, it's another Eminem episode uh, in in the popcorn that is past the mic. Hopefully, uh, you, if you've uh, listened to one or two of the others before, you know you know what that's all about. And man, I'm I'm actually really excited because uh, I'm I get a chance to ask you the questions that many people may have wondered, uh, many people may uh, have contemplated in in and of themselves all around your journey getting your PhD. This was actually something that was suggested via Twitter. Yes, yes, yes. Shout out to Jimmy Butts, who's been a longtime listener and supporter of Pass the Mic. He's written a couple pieces for the Witness uh, Black Christian Collective. So definitely check him out on the website. Brilliant brother, who is also on his PhD journey, uh, studying mm. black nationalism and religion. So uh, we've collaborated a bit in uh, the research sphere. But on Twitter, so for folks who don't know, I got my PhD. I defended the dissertation. I'm officially Dr. Jamar Tisby. And uh, <laughs> it has been a five-year journey and a journey long before that in many ways. But anyway, I just completed that on August 5th, 2021, made it Twitter official, Facebook official, and on Twitter, Jimmy was like, so I want the episode about your PhD journey and what you've been doing, what you learned along the way. And I was like, huh, that's a good idea. So copied that and sent it to you, Bo. And here we are. <laughs> All right, man. See, listener supported, listener driven. There you go. There you go. That's what we're all about. And uh, hey, if, if nothing else, it's also a great, uh, you know, hey, people can send in their suggestions for topics anytime uh, via Twitter, Twitter or otherwise. But man, all right. So this is this is interesting. So when I got the the message from you about this episode, I, I was reflecting back on when you first told me about this shift, where you at the time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe at the time you were still in seminary at RTS Jackson, and you were going to kind of drop out, so to speak, and uh, and kind of make this pivot. Oh man, you've got such a good memory. Uh, yes, so. Okay, I wasn't exactly going to drop out. I was going to switch programs. So I was in... Ah, okay, all right, all right. Switch programs. I'm sorry. Wrong it's link. very Come similar back. in a sense. Um, <laughs> I was in seminary getting an MDiv, which where I was going at RTS was a 106-credit-hour degree. I mean, it's a robust degree. And they bill it as a three-year full-time program. Most people didn't finish it before four years. It took me a total of five years. And so in the midst of that, I'm like, this is taking a really long time and it's 
quote unquote, just a master's degree. I mean, it's still, you know, a graduate degree, but for a master's degree, it was taking a really long time. So I thought for a season about switching from the MDiv to the MA program, which was like 66 credit hours. Mm-hmm. And I would be able to sort of finish that the next semester and then get on with my life, basically, whether it was a PhD or something else. But I was like, this is taking too long. What the heck? Uh, maybe I should just get the MA. Um, but, the, you know, this I, I, I'm sure we can talk about this further in the conversation, but it's the whole rigmarole around credentialing. Um, the PhD is sort of, you know, one of the ultimate kinds of credentials along with a MD medical degree or a JD or something like that. But but even in seminary, if you were seeking to be ordained, particularly in the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, like I was, if you didn't have an MDiv, your education was considered somehow lesser, JV, second class. So you could technically sit for uh, examinations and become ordained through the traditional process if you had, say, an MA, or even there were alternative kinds of certification that you could get. But it would sort of follow you that you didn't go the traditional route and get the MDiv like all the other uh, guys. And then at the same time, you layer on top of that being black and not having the same degree, the same credential. I was like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't subject myself to that. And I've come too far. So I decided to go through with the MDiv. But yeah, you're right. For a time, I was like, uh, maybe the MA and then get on with something else. It was so interesting too, because at the time, there was a lot going on in the world. Uh, there was kind of this major pivot that was happening, I think, within RAN as we were back then. And, you know, as our leader in particular, I mean, obviously there was kind of a lot of weight on you and we were also kind of looking to you to some extent as to what comes next. We were in constant debate, discussion around kind of what the future holds. And what what was it that really kind of pushed you to want to get your doctorate in history? Yeah, it well, it was a really long discernment process. Let me tell you that. Um, I think so. So my wife actually suggested getting a a terminal degree and uh i was it wasn't on my radar i have in seminary been bouncing around from idea to idea i could be an associate pastor somewhere i could be a mm. senior pastor at an existing church i could be a church planter i could be a missionary of some sort all of these ideas and i'm sure she was exasperated cuz probably came home with a new idea every 48 hours or so um, finally I was just like, what should I do? And she's like, you should finish your MDiv and get a PhD. I'm like, huh, really? Huh? I kind of like that. And so <laughs> that started me thinking about it. That's probably like 2013. And I distinctly remember cool. making a table. I, I was, I was excited about it, but I was also extremely lost and confused. So I made a table and I put in one column, all of the different degree programs and links to them. I put in another column, the due date. I put in another column, the materials you would need. I put in another column, the professor or professors I'd like to study under. I was like systematic about it in a way that I normally am not. Um, But it was just because I had no idea what I wanted. So I was looking at 
programs in uh, the UK, which are more writing intensive and, and have uh, no classwork requirements. I was looking at uh, theological programs at seminaries. And a few folks know this because I mentioned it before, but when I originally enrolled in a PhD program, it was not at the University of Mississippi. It was at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, go go. So, so what yeah, happened there, Jamar? It's, 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 it's all on the table these days. We've already done our Leave Loud episode. That's <laughs> so, true. That's true. So what I was looking for, I wanted to sort of be this pastor theologian. That was the big thing. Y'all, listen, when I tell you I, I was in deep <laughs> in these reformed Christian circles where they elevate formal education to a really unhealthy place looking back. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's way too much of weight on where you went to school, what degree you got, who you studied under, those kinds of things. There's far less emphasis on you know, are you good with people? How is your mm. the health of your marriage? Do you have the character to lead people spiritually? Those kinds of things. So I was I was elbow deep in all of this stuff, and um, I was wanting to to have this degree as um, part of creating this sort of mm, I don't know positioning myself, I guess, as a pastor theologian, which meant I was going to stay at my local church in the Delta. And I needed a degree program that was non-residential. It mm. just so happened that uh, Southern Seminary was starting a new PhD in Christian ethics that was going to be a modular. So, so you could live where you were and then you would go on campus, you know, uh, a couple times a semester for in-person meetings and classes. So I actually... It was a very extensive application pro process. You did the written application. If it was good enough, you then got invited to an in-person interview, which I went to. And um, I ended up getting accepted into the program. And so this is fall 2015. But even in the in-person interview, the professors who are supposed to be sort of asking me questions about my interests and, and I'm supposed to be asking them questions. They're asking me questions about like basic racial understandings, stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, they, they wanted to learn more about. And it was a posture of they wanted to learn from me, which I'm like, that's cool. But at the same time, I'm enrolling in a, in a, in a PhD program to learn from the experts. And it was clear they did not have any sort of expertise around race, theology, image of God, any of the stuff that I wanted to study. So that is a sort of roundabout way where I got to, um, in order to supplement and augment the classes at Southern Seminary, which had no sort of racial kind of um, depth or, or really even any specific classes focused on it. That's when I enrolled for my first graduate class in history at Jackson State University. And that's what got me hooked. Part of it, what got me hooked. Wait, that's interesting. Wait, how long were you at Jackson State? Uh, I took a class, uh, a semester, um, just a semester. And it was a powerful enough experience that I applied during that semester to the University of Mississippi and uh, got accepted 
into the program that uh, spring of 16 um, and then enrolled full-time fall of 16. Okay, cool. Cause I, I mean like, I don't, I definitely don't want to overlook the hometown university at all. Yeah. Uh, so in your journey, <laughs> that's one that I haven't talked much about. I, I took a class with Robbie Luckett. He wrote a great book on um, Mississippi segregationist senators and the way they shifted their language post um, Brown v. Board, post civil rights act. And basically, well, what the premise of the book is, listen, this massive resistance stuff isn't going to work. The law is the law. So if it goes to court, we're going to lose if we argue in support of racial segregation. But instead of giving up and saying, okay, let's embrace racial integration, they found other ways around it. So so Robbie's book is... Um, talking about the the political and the legal means, the the strategies they used to maintain segregation in Mississippi and, you know, by extrapolation across the U.S. So anyway, really interesting work. He's a white guy, but knew all about black history, especially civil rights movement history. And this remains, his class remains to this day, the only class I've ever read all of the books for the class ahead of time. I was that engrossed. It was, it was just thrilling. Um, in a very haunting way. So we were reading, you know, W. Fitzhugh Brundage about lynching. Uh, we were reading um, John Dittmer, local people, uh, a really fine grained history of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, including mm. all of the opposition and challenges and murder and repression they faced. So, so it was sobering history, but it was a, 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 an entire semester of aha moments and saying, I never knew. Yeah. And just shout out to Robbie too. You know, I, I got to make mention of this real quick. He is, he's, he's a white guy, but he has a very ambiguous voice. And I remember when we were, <laughs> yeah. when we were, uh, when we were uh, making red flag and I asked you for recommendations on historians we should talk to, you're like, well, you got to talk to Robbie. And so I call him up on the phone. I'm talking to him like, all right, it's really exciting. going to get him in, you know, Jackson state university and HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi, one of the blackest right. cities in America. And, this dude walks in, and I mean, it, this is after hearing his voice. I was like, "Well, uh, where's Robbie? Did, could Robbie not make it? Oh, you're, oh, you're Rob. Oh, okay." This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers. But maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code 12022. That's O-N-E 2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping.
history. Like it wasn't, I mean, I majored in American studies undergrad. Part of that was history, but part was literature. Part was more straightforward American studies. I didn't have anything in my academic background that would have sort of logically or obviously pointed me to history uh, for a PhD. That came about because Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson in August mm-hmm. 2014. Um, what happened there was, so so I was too young to really understand what was going on with uh, the, the Rodney King uprisings in LA in the early 90s. I, I lived through that, but I didn't really know what was going on. Um, Trayvon Martin happened in uh, 2010, 2011. And I remember sitting up and paying attention and being old enough to, to recognize this is important. But it wasn't until Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter and Ferguson that in my lifetime, it felt like this really big movement around racial justice, you know, nationwide marches, protests, those kinds of things. So I sat up and paid attention. And I also realized how little I understood. Uh, Even at that point, you know, I'm in my early 30s. And um, it was historians who had the most helpful things to say. They were able to talk about redlining, Uh, the origins of the police force in slave patrols and the goal of controlling black bodies and all of this stuff from history that I never knew or understood in context before. And to me, it seemed like historians had this like secret knowledge (laughs) that allowed them to understand and unpack the present in ways that I found incredibly compelling, informative and powerful. So I was like, I want that. Um, so, so that was part of what led me to look into history programs, but here's something else I don't think I've ever shared on Mike. Um, one of the reasons I left Southern, I was in the midst of it and I was at a, a gathering of black Christian men, almost like a retreat kind of a deal. And, um, a, a, a guy who has a long history in the Black and Reformed movement, Dr. Anthony Bradley, who taught for a while at Covenant Semina- Seminary in St. Louis, is now up at King's College in New York. Uh, I was telling him about my graduate degree journey and being enrolled at Southern. He was like, man, why, why are you doing that? And that was just one of those questions that just stopped me in my tracks and caused me to really pause and deeply reflect on why there, why that degree, why that field. What he was sort of arguing was he had gone that route. He got his PhD from Westminster Seminary and was um, had just an incredibly uphill battle to try to demonstrate his academic bona fides because he'd gotten his degree from a seminary. So he didn't want me to go through that same thing. I don't know if I'm oversharing now, but um, that's just the real deal. I, I would say that to anybody is if you get a PhD from a seminary, be prepared for an uphill battle because the standards are different. The community is different. Um, so after that conversation that was in Atlanta and I spent the entire six, seven hour drive back um, to, to my house, just con- rethinking everything. 
And so that was part of the reason that that sort of opened me up to being able to uh, switch to a different program. (laughs) So that's all precursor (laughs) to the original question that you asked. Uh, which I forget, <laughs> but no, that's, so that's really good. So, so that exp- definitely kind of, you know, leads into where your passion and desire to really dive into history. But so if you're going to get a PhD then <laughs> and a PhD in history, and again, this right. is, this is kind of a loaded question for, for you and I, I mean, you know, as, as people who have ties to Mississippi, uh, have a great, uh, love for many of the people in Mississippi and for the state yeah. of Mississippi, but a deep understanding of the challenges and the availability of resources and the uh, loaded uh, nature of our state. Why, if you're going to get a PhD in history, why did you choose not just Mississippi? Why did you choose the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, as kind of the, the, the route to go? All right. So it's a couple of things. Um, one, I had a personal connection through um, my good friend, Dr. Otis Pickett, who um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, his name, uh, many people assume that he's black as well, but he's a, a white guy from South Carolina, as about as Southern as you get. But um, he has a very funny story about going to work at a um, African-American historical center. They hired him sight unseen and he walks in the door, this big white dude named Otis. And they're like, uh, <laughs> uh, OK, I guess we're doing this now. And uh, he's he's had that happen to him several times. Right, but right. Um, Dr. Pickett graduated from the University of Mississippi. Now he teaches at Mississippi College, does great work on 19th century uh, Presbyterianism and race. He went to our church and also lived in our our same uh, community. And so we connected while I was in seminary. And he was just, I was always fascinated by his uh, knowledge of history then when I expressed some interest in history, he was able to introduce me to professors, navigate through the application process, and sort of um, be a, 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 an in because I didn't have any confidence I would be able to even uh, get accepted into PhD programs. Um, I had no, most of the time you have an, uh, a master of arts in history, then you apply to, to, to the PhD program, or you're coming directly from undergrad where you've probably majored in history. I didn't have any of that. I was coming in cold, basically second or third career, depending on how you want to count it. I was a non-traditional student, so I'm like, I need all the help I can get. So um, Otis came along and he was helpful there. The second factor was in Mississippi, only three universities offer a PhD in history. Uh, that's uh, Mississippi State, Southern Miss, and University of Mississippi. Of those three programs, there are great professors in in all of them. But you know, on on the sort of traditional rankings, the University of Mississippi had the highest rankings. Um, so that was a factor, not the biggest, but but a factor. You only had a choice of three if you wanted to stay in the area, which we did because my, my wife was still working and all that. And then the last factor was authenticity. So listeners by now know one of my historical heroes is Fannie Lou Hamer. I think one of the things that sets Fannie Lou Hamer apart is no one could question her authenticity. No one could question 
whether she knew what she was talking about in terms of white supremacy, voter suppression, racial segregation, because she was a poor black sharecropper from the Mississippi Delta. And, and, and being able, coming from that background and traveling all around the country gave her a credibility and an authenticity that, that even the most radical activists could, could almost never match. And in a similar way, if you're going to study race, in particular race and Christianity in the United States, if you're in Mississippi and you're at the University of Mississippi, there's, a, there's like an experiential aspect. There's a historical aspect to that school because of its racial strife that actually makes um, issues of race remain on the front burner. Now, I had grown up in the Midwest. We thought, well, we essentially behaved as if we were post-racial because we had people of other races and ethnicities around because we weren't the South, all of this stuff. But in the South and Mississippi in particular, you can never forget about racism because other, at the very least, the rest of the country won't let you forget it. The flip side of that is you actually pay attention to it. And so I was attracted to the University of Mississippi because there was actual activism happening on campus. First, it was the mascot that used to be Colonel Reb. They changed it to a black bear. Now it's a, a humanish, humanoid shark. <laughs> um, and then it was the state flag. The University of Mississippi was the last state-funded university to fly the old state flag that had the uh, Confederate canton on it. And um, there were protests in Oxford, the city, uh, where the Confederate monument is up in the central square. So it was, to me, a place where, you know, if I wanted to be a racial justice advocate, and in some senses an activist, this was a place where it was actually happening and not where I just read about it in a book. Hmm. Man. Yeah, it lived history, and I, you know, I never really considered uh, kind of the the cred that comes from Mississippi doing racial justice work in Mississippi, <laughs> but, uh, and especially studying history in Mississippi, it makes sense. You know, you made mention of the fact. And I, I don't want to make this. I, you know, we want to talk about this broadly in terms of your experience uh, going for a PhD, and then also just uh, your experience in kind of uh, uh, not 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 like again. This is not through the lens of you know, a black man in Mississippi getting a PhD. That said, during your time there, you also shared some really considerable thoughts. I mean, like you literally drove through cotton fields as you were going to, uh, going to school. I mean, I I guess before getting off this, is there anything else that you want to share about kind of the unique nature of getting a PhD from Ole Miss? Yeah. So, so this is probably true in general of the South, but in particular place, like Mississippi, as well as my home base being in the Delta, which has made all kinds of difference in in my life. I think subtly, probably subconsciously, that's part of why I chose history for a PhD is because moving down South and to the Delta specifically, history confronted me in a way that I had never been confronted before. Hmm. So the town where I live is a Civil War battle site. It's a pretty interesting one in the sense that it was uh, taken over by the Union pretty early in the Civil War. And so it has a very different history than a lot of other Southern cities or Civil War battle sites in the South. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, historic town in terms of the blues and blues music. It's a historic town in terms of um, in the same county where I live was the Elaine Massacre 
which is one of the largest uh, race riots and racial massacres most people have never heard about. Um, uh, upwards of 200 black sharecroppers massacred, killed by white rioters uh, who came in from Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas to 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 commit bloodshed. Um, and it's just a place, I mean, there's a Confederate cemetery in town with a 30-foot monument to the Confederacy. And the inscription says this monument is, quote, dedicated to hero worship. So that, and then when I lived in Jackson, <laughs> things like at our church, James Meredith, the first black person to integrate the University of Mississippi, sitting in my Sunday school class, listening to me fumble my way through teaching on the book of Acts or something, right? Like that, John Perkins here, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, right? Um, so much of, of what we know about the civil rights movement and activism and our heroes comes from Mississippi, even the phrase black power. And we think of the black power era as this non-Southern, urban, you know, uh, sort of modern civil rights movement that phrase had a long life uh, before 1966, but in 1966, Stokely Carmichael says black power on a march in Greenwood, Mississippi, and that's when it takes off nationally. So, so just the Southern roots and the Mississippi roots and the Delta roots of so much of our racial history is here that I wanted to learn more about it because I, w I was immersed in it. And if you're in a, another place, this is one of the things I say about the South. Racism is everywhere. Bigotry has no boundaries. But if there is a difference with the South, it's the geography. It's the physicality. It's the location. It's the fact that so much of the racial history that shaped us actually physically occurred here. I mean, you can go to the, the landing where they found Emmett Till's body. And that's just like two hours away from me. You know, it's that difference that made history feel so pressing and so urgent and so present to me. Kind of pulling back the lens a little bit. Let's let's talk about kind of your experience broadly. I mean, if somebody's wanting to go after their PhD, uh, you know, why? <laughs> you talked already. You did talk already about kind of the you know the way in which credentials kind of play into the systems that we have established. But understand, as someone like me who comes from like a tech focused background and mm. kind of in the startup community, where degrees are almost kind of like a sign of failure, like oh you didn't figure out how to you know, launch a company <laughs> before you grab. You know what I mean? Like it is a very different mindset. Like where. Yeah your credentials almost to some extent hurts you, hurts your credibility. It is a complete reverse in kind of academia and seminary, that sort of thing. It, to me, it almost kind of communicates, I, I feel very torn about it. On the one hand, I respect it. We need respected voices with, with kind of educated backgrounds who have kind of a deep understanding and a saturation of knowledge when it comes to history. That's important. That's critical. On the other hand, it does seem like these are kind of little like what, you, what are the flare badges? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, where's, your, where's your piece of flare? That kind of thing. So break it down for me, man. Why why go after a PhD? An old school office space reference. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of hype um, around credentialing. And um, in an internal perspective, no, it, it doesn't matter that much. I'll say this. I was able to write a New York Times bestselling book, another book, 
start a nonprofit, write for national news outlets like the Washington Post, CNN, CNN, The Atlantic, whatever, all before having a PhD. So it, it, it does not determine your ceiling in terms of being able to achieve what you want to achieve or, um, you know, just have a voice in certain spaces, right? That said, it's good for curb appeal. I think the PhD as a credential, uh, if they don't know much about you, that gives them a baseline. Like, okay, this, this person has done their homework in a particular area, but that's, that's, that gets, that, that maybe gets you a second glance, but then you got to come with it. You've got to have the content. You've got to have the substance. You've got to be able to deliver, which there are a lot of people out there without a PhD who can do way better <laughs> than folks who have one. So I say all that because, um, let's, let's not make the credentialing overblown. Uh, I think it's good upon first glance, but if if you aren't able to really deliver, have mastery, expertise, uh, conscientiousness in your craft, then it's not going to mean much anyway. Um, for me, I wanted it because I wanted to, to, to have advanced research skills in order to be able to write. So for me, it was it wasn't even necessarily about being able to teach. It wasn't about credentials in front of a certain audience. It was primarily about being knowing the history in order to be able to write uh, cogently and um, inform from an informed perspective about race. There was just so stinking much I didn't know. And this was, in my view, the, the most efficient way to sort of develop that knowledge. Um, so those are some of the reasons. I will say this, begin with the end in mind. If you're contemplating a PhD, think about what you want to do with it. In my view, a PhD is primarily about research and teaching. And if you don't see yourself teaching or researching at a very high level, like an academic level that's going to be reviewed by your peers, a PhD may not be what you need. You might need a practical degree like a DMIN or an EDD or a JD. You might need a master's degree if all you're looking to do is, is take a deep dive into a content area and know more about it, but you don't necessarily want to teach about it or, or write, you know, sort of peer-reviewed articles and books. It is a very academic, technical, narrow kind of degree uh, in terms of what it qualifies you to do. And not everybody wants to do that, and, but we get caught up, and I would get caught up in just thinking about, oh, but the prestige or the... the the you know credential itself is is worth something. It's worth something, but not enough to get you through the slog of classwork and writing a dissertation and all of the the, the mounds of effort that it takes to actually finish. That's what I would say. All right. So you know, one of the things that you know I think is probably pretty evident in your story and kind of the how you. Um, you know, kind of transitioned eventually into this degree is that you come from not just, you know, the perspective of a Christian going after his PhD, but somebody who was in seminary, somebody who has a, uh, just a very deep faith that is informing your, even your desires to, to get, uh, to get a PhD, to study history. I'm curious if you want to talk a little bit about the intersection of, of, 
going into kind of a, a secular university to get your PhD as a person of faith, uh, what tensions were there? What what frustrations may be there that you found that um, you, you know you may have found that there were more enlightening things in, in academia than you would in seminary? Oh, yeah, talk yeah. a little bit about that intersection. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so earlier I mentioned about getting a, a, a degree from a seminary or a Christian Christian institution, how that might be an uphill battle for some. I'll qualify that and say, if you want to remain in religious circles or the church world, it's it's totally fine to get your um, uh, PhD from a, a seminary or a Christian school. It's totally fine to get, um, there's another, what is it, a THD, uh, a doctorate in theology. Okay. If, if you want to remain in sort of religious spaces and faith communities and do your work there. It's much harder if you want to branch out to non-Christian or non-religious audiences um, if you've got your degree from a, a, a Christian institution. And then for me, you know, having come from a seminary background with an MDiv, not a history degree really, um, it was an interesting choice that I had. I could continue on that track and get a PhD from a seminary, which would really set me up for ministry. And this is in a season when I really thought, you know, the bulk or at least half my time would be pastoring in a local church. That it made it made a certain amount of sense. But like I said, that conversation with uh, Anthony Bradley and then just taking that class from Dr. Luckett, uh, uh, Robbie Luckett, it was it was I was gripped by it. In a secular program, it was so interesting. Number one, after attending seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and experiencing literally the most acute forms of racism I had ever experienced in the seminary, in the church environment, going to a non-Christian university that wasn't trying to be Christian was refreshing. (laughs) It felt like a relief. Like... You had a bunch, yeah, it is. it does trend much more liberal, especially in the history department. But what that means in action is people are at least trying to say and do the right things around race. Like, you just didn't have the same arguments. We weren't debating whether there's something called systemic racism or institutional injustice. We were reading books about it. We were studying primary source materials about it. It was simply assumed. We weren't um, having debates about wh- you know, whether there should be more black people in the program and you know, what could you say to, to, to try to you know, recruit more black people. At the department level, that was assumed as necessary. Now, when you move on up to the you know, administration and trustees, it gets a little different. But um, day to day in class, it was, it was just not the same battles and it, the battles that I was exhausted from, those weren't the ones, uh, that were showing up in class. And I think I actually had an advantage as a black Christian because a lot of the people there didn't know much about Christianity besides, you know, what they saw on the news besides like far right evangelicals, right? And most of what they knew about black Christianity was like Martin Luther King, civil rights movement, you know? So they assumed that my Christianity 
was of the same cast and type in the sense of it was a, a, a force for progress in society, um, which I hope it is in terms of racial justice. So I think they, they not knowing much about Christianity at all, but then knowing that I wasn't a white evangelical, but I was a black Christian, they assumed I would be more like Martin Luther King Jr. in my faith than Jerry Falwell Jr., <laughs> which was nice. <laughs> I'm curious, was there any, uh, do you have any kind of like, um, was there any like tokenism from a faith perspective? Like, oh, we need a Christian in here for this or anything like that. <laughs> well, it didn't show up in any sort of formal uh, way, but there was definitely the sense that, you know, Jamar's the Christian guy. Um, he'll know about race and religion kind of a right. thing. It was more along the lines of one's particular expertise, but you could argue that was true of anyone. So if you needed to learn about Appalachia, there was, you know, the students studying Appalachia and, and, and coal mining. If you needed to know about, you know, race relations in Southeast Missouri, there was the person studying that. So some of it was just the, the, the necessary specificity and expertise, but even in sort of social relations it was clear like they knew i was the guy coming from a seminary and uh preached at his church and those kinds of things but i never felt either ostracized or exploited because of that so as we kind of like you know bring it home here bring it to graduation if you will uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm curious like you know, you've got folks out there right now, they're, they're getting their PhDs, perhaps in history. What red flags would you have? What encouragement would you have? What are the pros, the cons? If you had to wrap that up, kind of sum it up, how would you, how would you do that? So I have two things. One is some lessons learned and two is sort of the charge going forward for people. Um, the hardest part of the PhD for me was not getting distracted from writing the dissertation. Uh, part of that's just my own wiring as Jamar. I'm always looking for the next thing to, to get busy with. Um, so, you know, I ended up writing two books, leading a nonprofit, recording a weekly-ish podcast, and a bunch of other things along the way. That might not be everyone's challenge, but I will say after the coursework, which is typically the first couple of years of a doctoral program, it is a lot less structured to do the dissertation. Once you present your prospectus, uh, your proposal for, for research, you're sort of on your own. Um, you know, nobody's telling you uh, when to research or, or even how. Um, it can feel very isolating and alone. And it, it's also one of those things that gets put in the important but not urgent category. Because hmm. the deadline's always, you know, weeks away, months away, even years away. And then there's always something else that's right in front of you that feels more urgent. So the hardest part for me was actually carving out the time and, and, and getting the work done. Now, toward the end, I think I sort of overcame that or, or, or was able to address that um, by getting a partner. And so shout out to Malcolm Foley, who as we record this is a PhD candidate, but will soon be uh, Dr. Malcolm Foley, he's getting his PhD in religious studies at um, uh, Baylor University. And uh, another black Christian scholar, 
we would set aside times on Zoom in the pandemic at like 6.37 in the morning to write for an hour or two. And that was the thing that I needed to, to sort of kickstart me. Um, the other thing that, that helped was uh, advice from uh, Otis Pickett that was like, you know what, when you, when you get to this point, you just need to write. Don't worry about primary sources, secondary sources. Just put your ideas down on paper or on a screen, as it were, and get it out there. Because you already know what you think. You're going to go back. You're going to correct and refine your ideas as you research. But to get past this block of not writing or not feeling like you're able to write, just put your ideas down and then go back in the revision process and make it all nice and academic. That was huge for me. That kickstarted me after a long dry spell of not writing. Um, so that was that was probably the biggest challenge. Uh, the greatest joy of the PhD was simply the research. I mean, you you even the rabbit holes you go down uh, when you're researching for a dissertation are just fascinating. And so there are so many tidbits, newspaper clippings, quotes, events that I can't wait to share with folks via my newsletter, jamartisby.substack.com, um, in, in, in that I found along the way. And, and that's the joy of it. So a PhD, you've got to love research. You've got to love the archives. You've got to love primary source. You've got to love the challenge of being a detective and trying to find the exact right person, quote, event material that you need for your work. Um, you got to be excited by the joy of discovery uh, stuff that you didn't even know was out there. So so that's a huge part of it. And that was the joy for me. And I'm very, very grateful for it. I even enjoyed to an extent the writing process. The hard part about writing a PhD in history, everything has to be footnoted, double check, verified. So even writing one sentence could take you three hours as you track down all of the verification. Um, so that's the first part, takeaways and, and, and just like my experience. The second part, the charge is this. Can I tell a story? Do I need to take a breath? By all means, please. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to pack five years of experience here into one <laughs> podcast episode. Sorry slash not sorry. Um, so what I'm what I, the bottom line is this: the work of racial justice is too urgent just to get a degree simply for your professional advancement or your personal uh, goals. You, you have, in my view. It would behoove scholars to employ their work in the service of justice. And I think back in terms of a story to W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the 20th century's greatest scholars, happened to be black, but just one of the greatest minds of the 20th century period and his experience. Um, he wrote in an essay from Dusk of Dawn, at the very time when my studies were most successful, there cut across this plan which I had as a scientist, a red ray, which could not be ignored. I remember when it first, as it were, startled me to my feet. A poor Negro in central Georgia named Sam Hose had killed his landlord's wife. I wrote out a careful and reasoned statement concerning the evident facts and started down to the Atlanta Constitution, that's a newspaper, office, carrying in my pocket a letter of introduction. On the way, news met me that Sam Hose had been lynched, and they said that his knuckles were on exhibition at a grocery store mm. farther mm. down on Mitchell Street, along which I was walking. 
I turned back to the university. I began to turn aside from my work. Two considerations thereafter broke in upon my work and eventually disrupted it. First, one could not be a calm, cool, and detached scientist while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. And secondly, there was no such definite demand for scientific work of the sort that I was doing, as I had confidently assumed would be easily forthcoming. Um, he went on to say that, uh, you know, this was a young man's idealism to, to, to want to just, you know, generate knowledge for knowledge's sake, but then confronted by the reality in his case of lynching, he was like, I can't, I can't be a scholar just for knowledge's sake. I can't be a scholar just for the academy. And from then on, he applied his prodigious intellectual skills to the work of racial justice. He was instrumental in getting the NAACP started. He wrote uh, the book Black Reconstruction, which finally started to correct the myths about uh, the Reconstruction era uh, after the Civil War. He did incredible work in sociology. Um, none of that perhaps would ever have occurred if he hadn't heard about this lynching and realized that he could use his education and his academic skills to save black lives and to promote racial justice. And that's the charge we have today. People are going to tell you, especially senior people in the academy, you can't have bias. You can't seem like you're, you have an agenda. And that just for me was never the goal, the priority or the consideration. It was the protection of black lives and the promotion of racial justice. And that's what I hope to use my work for. And whoever is getting an advanced degree or education at any level, I hope you turn it in the direction of justice in whatever field or sphere or sector that might be for you. Great charge. Uh, Doc, thank you so much for coming on Pass the Mic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for, or rather, thank you so much for uh, for letting me uh, come on here and, and ask you a little bit about your journey and for sharing that with us. Uh, where can folks follow you and, and the work that you're you're doing? You can follow Dr. Jamar Tisby at you see that. <laughs> did, did you put the doctor in the Twitter handle? Because I feel like you should put the doctor in the Twitter handle. I did put it in the Twitter handle. It's only up there temporarily. <laughs> I think at the uh, it, after a while it'll switch to the Jamar Tisby comma PhD, but it's going to be on there in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but my handle remains the same on Twitter and on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and sign up for my newsletter, jamartisby.substack.com. All right, man. Well, good deal. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for everybody tuning in and, uh, Hey, uh, we'll see you next time on the next pass the mic. Is it wrong that I want to just do the Bugs Bunny thing? I mean, I'm not going to because I feel like, <laughs> you know, very you wrong. Do so, you're, <laughs> so much you're an award winning producer. You can <laughs> dodge the cliches. You can come up with something. <laughs> uh, can I know? I don't know. All right. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs>